Hello everyone and welcome back to episode two of Wild Messy Infinite Love. Whew, I am still very much on the visceral high of recording and releasing my very first episode out into the world. Oh my goodness, I hope you guys really got a feel for what this podcast is supposed to be. I hope you guys liked what I had to say. I hope that my story is interesting and I hope that my voice is something that is going to help you connect with your true self, that helps you connect with other people, that helps you connect with the cosmos, that really inspires you to carry on these conversations in your own life, in your own context. So thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my first episode. Um, I just want to pause right here and let you know that I am very much looking forward to your engagement. So please, please, please on Podbean or iTunes or Spotify or wherever you might be listening listening to this on, please comment and engage, leave a review. That really helps me get a sense and feel for what is helpful for you. Because after all, the reason that I'm doing this whole podcast is not for me, but it's for you, the listener, um, because, you know, I felt the effects and the positive effects of a good podcast on my own life, on my own conversations, on my own context, on my own experience. And I want to give that to other people. So that's really why I'm doing this. So please engage with me, comment, leave a post, leave a review. Um, I have an Instagram account. It's esnader18. Um, I also have a Facebook page. If you look up Eric Scott Snader or Eric Snader, I think it's Eric Snader. Um, check that out. Leave a comment. Leave a message, something, engage with me. This is not just a one-way street, hopefully, but hopefully this is something that we can come together and journey together on. Um, So with that out of the way, leave a comment, leave a review, um, subscribe to the channel, subscribe to the podcast, share this with other people that you think it might be helpful for or useful for, all that good stuff. All right done with the business end of things. So um, thank you for coming back and listening to me for a second round of Wild, Messy, Infinite Love. Um, And I think I was thinking through, you know, what sorts of things do I want to talk about? And, you know, it's very terrifying thinking through, you know, I'm going to create this podcast and put it out into the world and hopefully it has something meaningful to say. Um, So thinking through what I want to talk about... um, I decided that uh, something that I think is really interesting and something that I um, feel like I have a pretty good knowledge base on is, um, well, the Bible. Um, Having spent the last five, six, seven years of my life sort of dedicating my life to the study of the Bible, to the study of Christianity, to the study of religion and philosophy, um, you know, the Bible is something that is very near and dear to my heart. So I really want to focus on a few biblical passages that are really captivating to me. Um, And some of the most captivating stories for me are Jesus's parables. Um, And these parables, I think, have not only interesting contextual historical implications and information, but I think they also have really huge, massive implications for our shared common life together today, um, just like they did have 2,000 years ago. So let's talk about that. everyone we're back i have my very favorite beer in hand the sweet baby jesus chocolate peanut butter porter by duclaw brewing company tastes like a peanut butter cup and a beer had a wonderful wonderful baby named sweet baby jesus so um, i've got my outline in front of me so let's talk about parables this episode is called a priest a levite and a samaritan walk into a bar your best guess about what parable I'm going to be talking about. 
Um, so a parable according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Um, these simple stories are generally really full of symbolism and highly contextual information. Um, Jesus's parables are no different. Um, you know, for us, the symbols and icons of our heritage and our culture are ingrained in us to such an extent that we might not even recognize that someone may view these symbols differently or these icons differently. Um, and this is very much the case in anything that has to do with the Bible, especially Jesus's parables, the symbols that he's using would have resonated probably a little differently to the first century audience that he was talking to than we necessarily interpret it today. So for example, in America, we view the bald eagle or the eagle in general as the symbol for freedom and democracy and, you know, freedom for the people, liberty, pursuit of happiness, all that kind of stuff. However, in the first century Roman Empire, the eagle was a symbol of the Roman legion, which was a military group that enforced violence, war, and sort of the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome that was really enforced at the end of a sword point. Um, so while in America, the symbol is a symbol of freedom, of liberty, um, for the minorities and the oppressed people groups of the Roman Empire in the first century, um, this symbol of the eagle would have meant death, would have meant war, would have meant blood, oppression. Um, and that's really very different and opposite to our modern day American understanding. So this highly contextualized information of the first century world must be considered anytime we enter into these stories and narratives that were written, some of them written 2,000 years ago, some of them written much longer before that even, um, depending on where you're at in the Bible. So um, these stories are being told in a specific historical context wherein the world superpower was the Roman Empire. Um, sort of in addition to this imperial reality, there is also at play sort of the smaller provincial rivalries and social structures of the Jewish people as well. And Jesus would have been very well aware of these different rivalries and social structures and sort of how that all interplayed with the Roman Empire. Um, because all of these aspects were realities to the first century Mediterranean world. And when we really enter into understanding those aspects and understanding those realities, we really are able to start getting at the spirit of the story, why the story is being told and what is going on in the story. And the spirit of the story is where we ultimately find the connecting piece between this ancient story of the first century world and our present day context. So before we really jump into the parable of the Good Samaritan um, and also the different parables that we'll be talking about moving forward in future podcasts, because I envision this being a little bit of a mini series, um, I really want to start off by saying that some of these suckers are freaking weird. Um, Jesus is a pretty mysterious figure who almost never spells things outright. Um, you know, when people ask him for advice or questions, Jesus often answers with some other question in return, um, which we'll see in the parable today. Um, Jesus also speaks in riddles. Um, he speaks in seemingly nonsensical analogies. He speaks in parables, which is this highly symbolic story. And constantly we see the disciples being left really confused and not really getting what Jesus is trying to say at all. And despite this confusion within the disciples, um, within readers even today, um, people are continually compelled by these weird, inspiring, and deeply spiritual stories. Um, so I suppose we should probably get to the story, right? Um well, here it is, as it is translated in the New Revised Standard Version, starting in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, the lawyer said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
he being Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend." Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So what on earth is going on with this this story? Um, Let's unpack it a bit. First, I want to talk about the relationship between the lawyer and Jesus. The lawyer in this story, um, it's a little different than our lawyers today. So our lawyers today, they dress up in suits and they go to court and they defend their clients and they try to persuade a judge or a jury that their client is either innocent or that their client should be allowed special privileges or, you know, whatever it is that their client really needs. Ancient Jewish lawyers were a little different, um, In fact, really, the only connection between ancient Jewish lawyers and our lawyers today was um, their strong knowledge of the law. But whereas our modern-day lawyers today specialize in civic law, Jewish lawyers of the first century specialized in the Jewish law. Um, And they were essentially interpreters of the Jewish laws. Um, You know, the things like the Ten Commandments, Um, the sacrificial codes, um, social conduct, you know, all that stuff that you find back in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and those really long books that no one really enjoys reading unless you're a Bible nerd like me. Um, So really these Jewish lawyers are people who spend their days dissecting things like honor your mother and your father, don't kill, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so sort of like me, I guess, (laughs) um, cause I am a huge Bible nerd. Um, so Jesus on the other hand is a rabbi who's another kind of person who has committed themselves to the study of the law. But what is interesting about rabbis is that they tend to have a particular focus on how these interpretations of the Jewish laws are lived out. So while both lawyers and rabbis spend ample time debating the Jewish laws, rabbis in general take this interpretation and debating a step further into living one's interpretation out. Um, This would sort of, this confrontation or this debate between Jesus and this lawyer would sort of be like a lofty academic theology professor encountering a local pastor and asking them a question. Um, So anyway, this lawyer goes up and asks Jesus how one inherits eternal life. And for the Jewish consciousness, this question really gets at the heart of what it means to be Jewish. Um, To inherit eternal life is to inherit the full blessing of the covenant or promise that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Jacob's son Joseph, and then also to Moses and the Israelites on Mount Sinai. So the entire Hebrew scriptures, everything from Genesis all the way up through the prophets and the exile and the return, um, and you know, like the faith, the Jewish faith that sprung out from that is essentially revolving around how one inherits this blessing. Um, so you know, this question of how do you inherit eternal life? is kind of a biggie, so no pressure on Jesus or anything. (laughs) But Jesus' response is really clever. 
instead of answering it himself, he responds to this lawyer with a question of his own. And he essentially sends, says, you spend all your days looking at this stuff. What, what do you think the answer is? It's as if Jesus is saying, why are you asking me, man? You already have the proper response up your sleeve anyway. Jesus sees through this lawyer's attempts to trap him or trip him up into saying the wrong thing. The lawyer, being a good Jewish lawyer, responds with the typical, you know, love God and love others, uh, which is really inherently tied within the Hebrew scriptures and a very Jewish way of interpreting the law. Um, the interesting point, however, is the next line where the lawyer, the Bible says, wants to justify himself. Um, and he asks who his neighbor is. It's as if to say the lawyer is already trying to draw boundaries around who is and is not one's neighbor. The lawyer is trying to ensure that he is doing what needs to be done to get eternal life. It's as if it's a game of numbers for this guy. Do the right things and you get your reward. Do the right things, say the right prayers, shake hands with the right people and you get your golden ticket into heaven. Does that sound like any Christians that you know? Because it sure does for me. That was the sort of Christianity that I grew up in. Um, and this sort of response is exactly what Jesus is refuting in this parable. Um, so let's talk about some of the historical realities of this parable that Jesus tells. Because even though it's a symbolic story, Jesus places it within a context that would have really hit home for the first century Jewish audience. So first, the road to Jericho. Um, the road that leads from Jericho to Jerusalem is a mountainous, treacherous road full of arid mountains, narrow passes, and plenty of places for crooks and robbers to sneak up on, sneak up on people unawares. Um, and I've actually had the opportunity to personally drive through this particular area um, just outside of Jerusalem. Um, I had the opportunity to go to Israel-Palestine this past spring. Um, and we drove right through this mountain pass. And let me tell you, it is bleak. It's barren. There's not much vegetation. And I really can't imagine a very, it would be a very nice place to be walking alone. Um, and it's in this mountainous, deserted area that a man is met by robbers who beat him, rob him of everything he has with him, even his clothes on his back, and they leave him lying by the side of the road to die. Now, who is this man? The text doesn't say. Let me repeat that again. The text doesn't say, and that's important. Um, the text just tells us that it's a certain man. It's as if to say the writer is saying this person could be anyone. This can be a Jew. This could have been a Gentile. This could be a New Yorker or an Amish person or whatever. The writer purposely leaves the man anonymous. Some of the most beautiful artwork, including paintings, musicals, songs, you know, that kind of stuff, are able to do this really cool thing where the story being told in the artwork is told in such a way that we, the viewer or listener, get to enter into it ourselves. It's as though, you know, when we watch the musical Hamilton, we actually realize ourselves as Alexander Hamilton or Aaron Burr or Eliza Schuyler. Um, when we listen to the song Stay With Me by Sam Smith, we are the ones crying out for our partner to stay with us, even if it is just for a single night. And that is what the author of Luke is doing. The author is saying that, you know, anyone can be the person who is robbed. Anyone can be the one lying at death's door. But the text, I believe, is told in such a way that we don't just simply identify with the robbed man, but that we identify with any and all of the characters, particularly the Samaritan, but more on that later. So the story tells us by chance that this man is visited by three people. How fortuitous. Um, so a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Um, the priest and the Levite pass him by, and yet the Samaritan is the one who stops and rescues him and even pays from his own pocket for this man to find the care that he needed to be fully healed. And let me tell you, two denarii is not a cheap amount of money. That's a good chunk of cash that the Samaritan is laying down for this guy. Um, and in the first century, the people 
um, who are talked about in this story, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, they all would have had very distinct social classes that would have been keenly known by the audience that Jesus was talking to. And that's sort of one thing that really comes with the Roman Empire, but it also comes with the Jewish society that Jesus was moving in and around in. Uh, But especially in the Roman Empire, there wasn't much social mobility. And so people had a really strong knowledge of where they fit into society. And once you were in that shoehorn of either a slave or a freed person or a merchant or, um, you know, like emperor or like that upper crust society, once you were in that status, there really wasn't much chance of moving up or down the ladder, so to speak. Um, it was not very socially mobile. And even though Israel and the people of Judah weren't necessarily super chummy with the Romans, the Roman order did manage to spread down the line even to Palestine. Um, Hence, even within this Jewish community, lawyers like the one talking to Jesus are almost more concerned with how to section off and boundaryficate I'm making up a word, but they're really more concerned with how to section off or boundaryficate one society rather than focusing on loving God and loving others. It's as if to say the boundaries that we're placing around this are more important than the thing itself. Um, So to place these travelers along the road into our modern day context, um, the priests would have been sort of the social elite. Um, They maintained a particularly important office in the daily comings and goings of the temple. So these were the guys who were actually making the sacrifices and doing the rituals on um, a daily basis and on these high holy days. So like, for instance, the holy day of Yom Kippur in the Jewish faith traditionally had some sort of high priest go into this section of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And there this high priest would give, um, would ask for forgiveness for the Jewish people's sins in front of God to God's own face. And he even had a rope tied around him so that he could be yanked out because God was considered so holy that you couldn't even look upon him or enter into that room. Otherwise you would die. So uh, this is like the priests were like the upper crust kind of people. Um, They were the super powerful. They were the super important guys. And they sort of acted as like the conduit or the in-between person between the Jewish people and God. Um, So a modern day context of this would be someone like the Pope or, you know, like the Cardinals of the Catholic church. Like think, think of your church and then think, or your own spiritual context, and then think about the person who's at the very pinnacle of that institution. That's sort of what the priest was like. Um, So, um, you know, people like the Pope or the Cardinals of the Catholic Church, they serve the role as the conduit between the people of the church and God. Um, So imagine for me, just a second, that a man gets beat up and left for dead on a street in Rome and the papal cavalcade is going through that area and they see the guy lying by the side of the road dying and they pass him by. Um, That's sort of the same kind of idea that this story is telling. And while I'm 99.999% sure that our current Pope would stop for the man because Pope Francis is really concerned with um, the marginalized and the oppressed and, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Looking back on the papal history, I think it's fair to say that some of the popes probably would have passed a dying man on the side of the road without really a second glance. Um, So next, after the priest, comes a Levite. Someone who's a member of the priestly family, but not necessarily to the level of high priest or anything like that. Um, They trace their lineage similarly to that of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Um, So they're part of that family, but they're not quite at that upper crust crust region yet. Um, So they would have had some sort of function within religious practice, whether that be at the temple in Jerusalem or possibly at local synagogues. And to draw on a modern-day context, 
uh, a similar role. These are not exactly like-to-like roles that I'm talking about, but a similar role would be something like a local pastor, um, you know, someone who's a leader of a local congregation um, who spends week in and week out preaching and saying, you know, love God, love others, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, This guy passed the man on the road. And not only do the priest and the Levite past this guy who's lying by the side of the road, they see him and then they actively cross to the other side of the road. And it's as if to say this man is unclean and therefore we can't even come close to touching him, much less care for him. We don't have time for that. We don't want to deal with it. We might get our hands dirty. What might people think? You know, this kind of stuff. And this part after the priest and the Levite pass this dying man by the side of the road is where the story gets really juicy. So among rabbinical and religious discussions within the within first century Judaism, there was this common story pattern. Um, so there would be some sort of problem produced um, generally concerning with how one lives out the law of God given to them by um, via Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, so there's this problem produced, and then there's a series of three people that attempt to answer this problem. And the common thread of this story went a little something like this. A priest, a Levite, and an Israelite, yada, yada, yada. Um, so a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite walk into the bar, and here's the problem, and here's how they answer it. And oftentimes it was the common Israelite person who outshone the priest and the Levite in following the Jewish laws. Uh, But Jesus, while setting up this traditional way of telling the story, and I'm sure the listeners would have been anticipating Jesus to say, well, the priest and the Levite passed this guy um, and they're clearly in the wrong, but the Israelite comes and saves him. But Jesus doesn't do that. Um, Jesus doesn't say that the third person is an Israelite. No, the third person who comes along is a Samaritan. And this moment in the story would have been incredibly jarring for the people listening to it. And this is why. In the first century, a Samaritan was someone who was despised by the Jewish community. The Samaritans traced their lineage all the way back to when, you know, the kings ruled Israel and Judah, you know, these divided kingdoms. If you want to learn more about that, check out the book of 1 Kings. Um, So um, they were descendants of both people, possibly people from the northern kingdom of Israel, but also from these outsider groups who were forcibly moved into the northern area of modern-day Israel-Palestine by the then imperial powerhouse, the Assyrians. So quick history lesson. And Israel used to be a united kingdom under um, Saul and David and Solomon. And then when Solomon's son Rehoboam took over, the kingdom split into the southern kingdom known as Judah and the northern kingdom known as Israel. And then there were a series of kings. Many of them were not very good kings, according to the Bible. Uh, many of them worshiped idols and committed child sacrifice and, you know, like all these other kinds of stuff. And eventually these imperial powerhouses came in and took over and exiled um, the people of Israel and Judah out of their homes. And the first kingdom to fall is the northern kingdom of Israel somewhere around the 8th century BCE. So at that time, Assyria was the huge, huge imperial powerhouse of the Mediterranean. And they came in and they defeated Israel. And Assyria had this practice of basically exporting people to places that were not their home to sort of discourage rebellion. So they went in and they conquered Israel and they took all of the people of Israel and they displaced them. They split them up around their empire. And then they took other people from around their empire that they had already conquered. And they then placed them as the inhabitants of 
the kingdom of Israel or the land of Israel. Um, so the Samaritans sort of trace their lineage quasi to this northern kingdom of Israel, but more importantly to these outsiders who entered into the land after Israel was taken. Um, and according to the Bible, I doubt I really have to go too much into this, but according to the Bible, the Assyrians were not great people. They were idol worshipers. Um, they did a bunch of bad stuff. Check out the story of Jonah if you want to learn a little more about why Jews didn't really like Assyria all that much. So anyway, these descendants, the Samaritans, um, they had a lot up against them that caused the Jews to not like them very much. So for instance, they worshiped on the wrong mountain. They didn't go to Jerusalem to worship. They had their own mountain and their own temple that they worshiped on. Um, their scriptures were wrong um, and they were tainted by the awful sin of being the offspring of an outsider group. Um, and even though the Samaritans, by the time the first century rolled around, the Samaritans may have even held similar familial and cultural ties with the Jews of the first century. They really viewed each other as heretics and heathens. Um, and within the biblical narrative, you particular, particularly see Jewish animosity towards Samaritans. Um, and they really hated each other. Um, and this relationship between Samaritans and Jews would have probably been similar to the relationship of that of European Christendom and the Islamic nation states of the Middle Ages. Even though their religious um, history traces back to a similar ancestry and heritage, and even though their holy texts even talk about the same people, including Jesus. Yes, Jesus is in the Quran. There was enough of a difference to cause huge amounts of animosity and bloodshed between the two over the centuries. And even today, we still live with this legacy of hatred between Christians and Muslims, um, at least within the more radical wings of each party. Um, you can just look at the fear-mongering that surrounded and continues to surround anyone of Muslim faith by Americans, um, particularly during both the Bush administrations and also in the quote-unquote travel ban put together by our current president. Um, but then you can also see ISIS as not necessarily being representative of the entire Islamic community, and yet... There is great amounts of hatred um, from ISIS towards anyone labeled as a Christian. Um, another not quite so serious, but also kind of serious because it's a very real reality that we in America live in today. But another example of this hatred between Jews and Samaritans would be the animosity and division that is shared between Democrats and Republicans within our American political sphere. Um, do I really need to elaborate and give any sort of examples of when Republicans and Democrats did not see eye to eye and in fact bashed each other in the press? Just watch CNN, just watch Fox News. Need I say more? Um, so either way, this story is radical in that Jesus is claiming that even people who are considered enemies are our neighbors. Even though this lawyer was attempting to draw boundaries around where God's love runs out, he's more or less trying to create a box to hold God in. Jesus is claiming quite radically that these boundaries, this box, so to speak, doesn't exist at all. And especially when considering those who would, who would seem, excuse me, who would seem diametrically opposed us. Um, these people who are diametrically opposed to us can be bearers of God's love and justice. And what's particularly interesting about this story is also that Jesus is telling this story not to Samaritans, but he's telling it to the priests and the Levites. Um, Jesus is simultaneously slamming the present way of ordering things, i.e. drawing boundaries around everything, while also opening up the door for a new way of ordering the world. One 
an order where these boundaries don't exist at all. Um, a world where everyone is viewed as your neighbor, everyone is viewed as your teacher, even those considered to be your enemies, even those considered to not see eye to eye with you, even Terry from work who sits in the cubicle next to you and chews with their mouth open and listens to music without headphones on. This is Cheryl who is constantly your neighbor Cheryl, who is constantly nagging you about trimming your bushes so that their yard doesn't look so bad. This is the boss that you work for that isn't able to listen to your emotional or um, physical needs that you have in your particular work environment. These are the people that Jesus is saying can also be your neighbor and can also be administers and vessels of God's love and justice to not only you, but also to the world. Um, you know, imagine the story in our present context for a minute. Um, the guy walking down from Jerusalem is a gun-toting, evangelical Christian, gay-hating, white supremacist who is left for dead at the side of the road, and a black transgender person stops and carries the man to safety. Not only that, this transgendered black person takes the man to the hospital and then pays their medical bill. That is the crux of this story. The spirit of this text then is that recognizing all as one's neighbor and loving them with a generous and hospitable spirit is the key to inheriting eternal life slash loving God slash living a full life slash whatever it is that you want to put in here, whatever your interpretation of inheriting eternal life is. But even more than this spirit of generosity and love, which you know I think many are able to sort of digest and place within their own personal context fairly easily. I mean, like we can all think of, well, who is our enemy? How can we be loving them better? How can we be nicer to them? How can we alter our mindset about how their actions affect me? You know, like all that kind of stuff. That's generally fairly simple for people to grasp. But this story also brings up some very serious questions, which I see are crucial questions that we have to ask ourselves as a nation and as a society and as an ever increasingly connected world. So the very first question that the text asks, and you know, it's found within the preamble of the parable itself is, who is your neighbor? And the answer, according to Jesus, is pretty simple. It's everyone. It is anyone that we come into contact with. It's the, the priest, the Levite, the people within our in-groups, so to speak, um, even though I'm not a huge fan of that sort of term. You know, the people within our communities that we get along with are absolutely our neighbors, but so too are the people on the other side of the aisle or the spectrum. So too is Terry from work or our neighbor Cheryl. Um it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this, but the story would be like saying that the Democrats and Republicans actually passed a bipartisan legislative bill where both parties compromised in order to move the whole thing forward. This is, you know, that example of the man who's a Baptist and a gun toting, you know, like evangelical gay hating guy being carried to safety by um, someone, a transgendered black person. You know, these people are our neighbors too. And that is not an easy thing to hear, but it is everyone, no matter their race, their gender, their nationality, their party alignment, etc. Everyone is our neighbor and everyone is capable of bringing with them the love, generosity, hospitality, and justice of the divine spirit that runs through us all. Um, I mean, can you imagine with me what this would look like in real life? I know I lean heavily on our political atmosphere right now, but I really think that this story is particularly important in our current political atmosphere. 
So, you know, like think about how the news would be portrayed instead of CNN and Fox News and these other media conglomerates continuing to churn out party biases and ideologies and just slamming the other side. Maybe, just maybe, we would hear about the good things that come out from the party that we're not necessarily aligned with. Um, now, believe me, I definitely have my own beliefs on how things should be run. And, you know, I have a party that I tend to vote in alignment with a good deal of the deal of the time. But I really shudder to think how messed up our country is going to be if we continue going down this road of failing to listen and register that our neighbor's beliefs hold validity as well as ours, and they deserve to be listened to in the hope that compromise can be made. There's, within our democratic system, we have two parties for a reason because we understand that it's not just one voice within our diverse people group. Um, you know, I, I have my own... Uh, misgivings and sort of criticisms of just keeping it to a two-party system. But, you know, we have this democratic system that is supposed to be built around people from different perspectives compromising and coming together. Um, you know, I would be really foolish to say that the way I think things should be run is the only way that things should be run. Um, and I would be really foolish to say that my way is the only way with any sort of justice or goodness or love within it. Um, so, for example, I come from a family that is pretty diametrically opposed when it comes to theological and political political beliefs. My family sort of runs the gambit on where one falls in terms of um, political conservatism to libertarianism to liberalism to theological beliefs and you know all that kind of stuff um, but despite this opposition that we face amongst each other there's still an outrageous amount of love found within these familial ties that we all share together and you know these political ideologies and these theological beliefs really get at the heart of deeper questions of things like what does it mean to be human what is the human nature are we inherently good or are we inherently um, corrupted by sin you know this kind of stuff what does it mean to organize our lives together what's the most important part of our society what's the most effective way of organizing our lives together? What should we be focused on? What are the fundamental creeds for us as a community and as a nation and as a human race on earth? And those, I think, are better questions to ask than something like, should a border wall be built? Um, you know, it's strange, but even though me and my family find a lot of differences on how we think things should be run and the question of should a border wall be built is one of those questions of how we think things should be run. When we dig deeper, um, especially me and my family, we oddly find that we do have a lot of agreement on some of those deeper, more fundamental questions. We don't find total agreement, but we do find some agreement. And the way, even though the way we live out those answers may be different, the fact that there's at least some modicum of consensus is huge in starting to move forward and starting to understand one another and starting to be able to see the spirit that rests within them that also rests within me, which is what this podcast is really all about. It's about finding that spirit and naming it and claiming it. Um, but, you know, obviously... In order to get to those deeper fundamental questions, we have to come at it from a perspective of humility and willingness to listen. If we enter into these conversations ready to be combative, ready to just put the other person down, ready to just completely disregard their beliefs, how do you ever expect to get into that deeper, more vulnerable space? Um, I know for me, when someone attacks me, I get defensive. 
Um, and it's the same for other people. If we go on the attack right away, if we don't come in with a sense of humility, of respect, of dignity, we can never reach that deeper level. Um, and the second question that I was left with is this. Do boundaries really matter at all if everyone is our neighbor? So for the, for the lawyer of this story, the boundaries were the most important thing for him. Um, so this question of do boundaries really matter if everyone is our neighbor really rests with me. You know, do party politics and church denominations and nationalities and even race really matter? Do cultural heritages matter? Um, and I think that the answer for this is sort of a yes and no kind of answer um, because it depends on how you're defining boundaries. Um, if you're defining boundaries in the sense of that which maintains the fact that we are different, um, then these sorts of boundaries um, are important because they maintain diversity. I mean, look at the world around you. It's full of diversity um, from wildlife to plant life to human experiences, um, food, culture, fashion, nature. It's all so different depending on where you are at in the world. And I think the boundaries in that sense are really important to cultivate and maintain because the way of the world and the way of the cosmos is not one of whitewashing or controlling other people into one way of doing things. That things that is getting into the second understanding of boundaries, which we'll get into in a minute. But the way of the cosmos is a vibrant diversity. Um, you know, we really need eyes that can see from different perspectives. And we need the joy and wonder that diversity brings. We need that awe-inspiring childlike curiosity and wonder and joy when we encounter new things or when we encounter these things that are beautiful even though they are not our necessary experience, when they aren't necessarily part of our cultural or our history or you know like this kind of stuff there is joy and wonder that this diversity brings and when you're talking about boundaries in the sense that you know everything is diverse and beautiful in its diversity then yes we need those boundaries because we can't whitewash this world however when you're talking about boundaries in the form of like this dualistic tribal sense or this tribal warfare, I think that's where boundaries are not needed. Um, so like boundaries in this tribal world, at their heart, they point to a false reality of the false self. And what I mean by this is that we tend to create an image of ourselves. Um, and in this false image or this false identity, we claim that we're better than others. We claim that we have the right way of doing things. We claim that we are um, better than others or more advanced than others. So we need to bring this and implement this and force this on to others. A perfect example of this was the terrible, terrible colonial atrocities performed in the nations of the continent of Africa during the late 1700s, 1800s, when all these European countries were coming in and trying to, quote unquote, westernize and Christianize the indigenous peoples. And they caused a whole lot more harm than they did good in doing that. Um, and they were suffering under this idea of the quote-unquote white man's burden where they have to share this advancement with others because their way is better than other people's way. Um, and when we're trapped in this false reality of the false self, when we're trapped in this tribal world, people on the outside of our group 
tend to be threatening and therefore we should either be fear fearing them or we need to put them down or they're weaker than us and therefore they don't deserve to exist. And the fact is that the world is not partitioned in this way. The fact is there isn't one sect of reality in my historical, cultural heritage, you know, whatever you want to put in there. And there's not a separate reality in someone else's cultural experience, but it's all part of one singular reality of which we are all a part of. So while diversity is a good thing that must be be maintained, this false self that tends to put ourselves above others is bad because it points us away from the fact that this is a singular reality of which we all are a part of and which we are all sharing in. There is one spirit which runs through all people and all things. And while nationalities and cultures maintain a vibrant diversity which allows us to view this one reality from different perspectives and use different vocabulary, we are all pointing towards that same reality. God is one, as those in the Islamic community might say. Um, You know, this is one reality. And boundaries in the sense of tribal dualistic warfare um, are facades that attempt to point us away from that one reality. And this tribal boundary system is so entrenched within us. I mean, you just have to look at the country of America over the last two years since the election of Donald Trump. We are a divided nation and our current president and his um, his sort of seat in the White House over the past couple years has brought this division into stark relief for a lot of people to see and a lot of people to shudder at. Um, So Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan provides us with a way of counteracting this division that humanity seems to shoehorn itself into time and time again. And the way of counteracting that, at least the first step, is by remembering who our neighbor is and remembering that in this world's diversity, they too have a valid and important way of viewing the world. And we can, by doing this remembering, we can begin to cross the fissures of our world and start to build bridges rather than to build walls and rather than pushing ourselves further and further and further away from people who might be different than us. And this is not to say that there are some viewpoints and social structures that should be accepted. Um, Far from it. Jesus himself was really diametrically opposed to the Roman militant imperial machine, um, which is part of the reason he got nailed to a cross in the first place. Um, Jesus was also really opposed to the priestly, economic, religious stranglehold on the temple. Um, Maybe we'll talk about that in a future podcast. Um, But Jesus's opposition to the priestly order of things was one of the reasons he got brought before Pontius Pilate and one of the events that led to his crucifixion as well. Um, There are some things in this world that don't belong here and we need to oppose them. But we find those things by looking at those deeper fundamental questions of who we are as human beings. And we need to look at these deeper questions of what do these things say about human dignity and what do these things say about the sanctity and sacredness of human life. So things like racism, violence, fear-mongering, social inequality, systematic oppression of minorities, these things that really attempt to dehumanize people, these things that attempt to maintain this dualistic tribal facade do not belong here. They don't value the diversity of our cosmos and they don't 
value humanity as they should. They fail to see the connections between all humans and all things. So while I say, yes, we must be willing to listen to those who are opposed to us, we absolutely should not sit idly by while oppression and violence run rampant, just like the priest and the Levite did. You know, things like Charlottesville, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, the attacks on Paris, um, the attack at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, the attack in Parkland, Florida, Las Vegas, the World Trade Center. These acts of violence, these acts of oppression, these acts of racism and fear-mongering, these things aren't okay. And we need, need, need to find the balance between resistance to these evil, oppressive structures and things and, you know, whatever else. We need to find the balance between resisting that, but then also finding the balance to actually cross the picket line, so to speak, and actually talk to someone who believes something that's different than what we believe. It is a very different thing to be resistant to um, police brutality or social inequality than it is to just automatically be resistant and defensive and attacking against someone just because they voted for a different political member during the last election. Those are two different things. And while there might be some overlap there, we are complex human beings with complex experiences, complex histories, and we all do have those answers to those fundamental human questions, and we need to dig deep down into that area of vulnerability. Um, but all this is to say, you know, we, we need to be able to strike that balance between resistance of evil, resistance of empire, resistance of oppression, but then also figuring out how we share this life with one another. Um, but we'll probably have to put that off for another podcast because I'm rambling and I'm also quickly running out of time. Um, but all this is to say is that we must stand vigilant in the face of boundaries defined as this tribal system. Um, we must cultivate diversity in the world, um, you know, this diversity which enriches and emboldens others. Um, these things that reveal the beauty of humanity in the world, rooted in the spirit of love within all things. And we must also resist the temptation to let boundaries turn our eyes from that same spirit. We must break through the facade of the false self of tribal dualistic warfare and boundaries. So finally, a third question remains for me in reading this story. And that question is this, which character are we? Are we the common person who has been so beaten down that we are barely hanging on? Is there someone else in your life who is this person? Are we the robbers? Are we actively participating in the oppression, injustice, and aggression towards others? Are we actively participating in creating the tribal boundaries of the false self and the false group identity? Are we the priest or the Levite? Are we culpable in seeing violence and oppression happen around us without even stopping to see if we can help? Do we refuse to get involved with things like racial or gender inequality because, well, just maybe we might be faced with a disruption. We might get our hands dirty. So for that reason, I'm not going to get anywhere near it. Um, you know, if we get involved with this racial or gender inequality, we might not be able to maintain the image that we've worked so hard to maintain with the people of our in-group. Or are we the Samaritan? Are we the one who, when a need is present and plain for all to see, stops to meet that need? Are we going to resist oppression and injustice? 
Are we going to shower those around us with love and care, even if it means crossing over to the other side of the picket line and realizing that even those who are different than me have, a valid, have valid thoughts and feelings and emotions? Are we going to stop and realize the spirit of love which courses through us and all things around us? So friends, in a benediction that is in the spirit of Rob Bell, may you remember this parable of the Good Samaritan. May you be reminded of the question, who is my neighbor? May you find joy in the diversity of life around you, and may you live into the one spirit that connects all to the one reality of this wild, messy, infinite love. May you be a Samaritan to those around you, no matter who you come into contact with. Peace and love, y'all.